Naja, where are you calling from in the world? I am calling from Brighton, by the seaside. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, why? Why, oh, my goodness? I was a student in Brighton really? many years ago, and now I, a, really? a, and now a close family member is a student in Brighton. Right. I took him out for drinks at the basket makers. Right. I, I'm still getting to know it. If I look out of my window and really squint, I can just about see the sea. And that's a really nice thing to do. So I sit here days out to sea and miss all my book deadlines. Ah, the best of all possible. I've been doing that for years. <laughs> yeah, it's great. John, you're not calling from your usual Oxfordshire, are you? No, I'm, I'm in Stillington in North Yorkshire. I'm, I'm looking out. Well, I'm not, actually. I've got my back to the Hawardian Hills, which are um, it's very beautiful. It's very near Castle Howard. Castle Howard, please. Castle Howard. Ha- <laughs> ah, sorry. Sorry. I, I, I forgot. <clears throat> We've just done South Riding. I'm, I'm, I'm more or less in South Riding. If South Riding was a real place, this is more or less where it would be. So Our magnificent Yorkshire accents just won't quit, listeners. <laughs> Still. <laughs> oh, was that meant to be Yorkshire? Was that Yorkshire? Sorry, I didn't realise. <laughs> uh, I'm very much afraid it was, yes. <laughs> okay, okay. Do a lot of people write letters in? <laughs> and Raymond Briggs lives near Brighton, doesn't he? My understanding is he lives in a village called Westmeston, which is probably about a 15-minute drive from where I am. So after this, I'm going to go round with some cakes. Are you? That's very nice of you. Go yeah. and tell him we all think he's great. He'll love that. I will. I will. I probably won't get very close to the front door, but you know. He was certainly living there in 2015 when we filmed the film that we made for Notes Notes from the Sofa in his amazing ramshackle house. I mean, his most incredible house full of full of stuff. It's and full of stuff that you recognise from the books as well, which is which is wow. uh, particularly exciting. With a view out the window of his studio is the view that you can see in several of the books, including um, somewhat looking the worst for wear in When the Wind Blows. Oh, blimey. Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today, you find us deep underground in a damp and oozy land of muck and grime. We've just put on our deliciously wet and filthy vest and trousers and are pulling on boots full of groom and gleet. We're about to set off through the dimly lit tunnels towards the top to indulge in some hauf, hopefully involving glyphs, flays, horripilations, and if we're lucky, boils. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund the books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And today we're joined by a new guest and an old favourite, Naja Shireen and Andrew Mail. Hello, both of you. Hello, hello, hello. Hi. Hello. hello. New guest, Naja Shireen, is a children's book author and illustrator. She mainly works in the picture book format, but has recently moved into making middle grade books, the ones with black and white drawings in. I didn't know what that was. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah, I thought I'd better underline what that was. Thank you. With a new series called Grimwood. She used to work in magazines as a sub-editor, most notably for Smash Hits just before it folded. Yep. True story. How has your work on Smash Hits influenced your current work? It's influenced it really directly, actually, because I worked on, I was a sub-editor, so I was putting together, you know, helping to put together the magazine. So... I was learning about image and text and funny captions. And I had an education in kind of 
on-the-job education in graphic design and editing, that it really, really has informed how I work. Yeah. <laughs> on another level, just the way that I write and kind of the silly words that I sometimes use. One of my picture books is called The Bumble Bear, and there's a page in The Bumble Bear where a load of bees are surprised at something and they all say what the jiggins and I, and I wasn't sure where I wasn't sure where I got what the jiggins from and then one day I was leafing through a back issue of smash it as I want to do of an evening yeah. and um and, and I came and I found I found a feature from like 1986 or 87 and it said what the jiggins is Morrissey going on about now and I thought oh there you go <laughs> yeah Naja is also a true backlisted friend because she's a massive Pet Shop Boys fan and she lives in Brighton with two indifferent cats. That's what we all require true. from all true backlisted yeah. fans. Meanwhile, <laughs> our, our old favourite guest, who to use the Argo of smash hits, is back, 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 <laughs> is official friend of the show, Andrew Mail. Hello. Yay. Andrew is making his ninth appearance on Backlisted. Oh, goodness <laughs> me. As well as all six of our Halloween episodes, Andrew has previously joined us to talk about Norwood's Raymond Chandler <laughs> and Salisbury's William Golding. He's a celebrated arts journalist and booksnut, the senior associate editor at Mojo magazine, and writes regularly on music, books, film, art, TV, architecture, clothes especially really? hat, hats for <laughs> sunday just, he's just making it up now <laughs> god bless him he's the he is the big issues hat correspondent <laughs> <laughs> had no idea had no idea that uh, was him i'm still it, waiting for my first column they haven't got back to me they promised yeah and he yeah. does all those things for sunday times culture and the guardian and uh, we're really, uh, it's so nice to see you here in a non-ghoulish capacity. Indeed. Right, you, mate, it's you, vaguely indeed. ghoulish, isn't it? It's not to say that there aren't ghoulish elements to Fungus the Bogey Man. <laughs> we already know what this year's Halloween choice is going to be. And yeah. if, when, when we get to it, I'll tell you <laughs> what the, you'll see how, uh, what, what the, the, the choice was between the book we're doing today and the book we're doing in October. It's quite... <laughs> Quite it's a big quite gap. a dramatic difference. Yeah, unlikely to be found on the same shelf. Okay, the book we are here to discuss, if you haven't already guessed, is Fungus the Bogeyman by Raymond Briggs, first published by Hamish Hamilton in 1977. The illustrated story of a working-class bogeyman undergoing an existential crisis about exactly what his night job of scaring dry cleaners, that's us humans, is for became a huge international bestseller, as well as sp spawning merchandise of all shapes and sizes, of which more later, the book has been adapted for stage and twice for television, including a memorable BBC version in 2004, written by the novelist Mark Haddon, and most recently in a Sky three-parter starring Timothy Spall, Joe Scanlon, and Victoria Wood in her last television role. But before we sink knee-deep into the mulch and mould of bogeydom, Andy, what have you been reading this week? Thank you very much. Uh, I've been reading a book called Laugh at Defiance by Mary Richardson, which is uh, a memoir that was published in 1953. Uh, it's not in print. I had to get it out of the library in order to read it. And the reason I wanted to read it was that it's mentioned by artist and writer called Tom DeFreston in a new book called Wreck, which is published by Granter uh, this month in March. It's about the 
painting The Raft of the Medusa by Jericho and various things that come off that painting. And I'm going to talk about it on a future episode of Batlisted. But in the course of this book, Tom de Freston talks about something that happened on the 10th of March, 1914. Um, on that date, Mary Richardson, who was a campaigner for women's suffrage, entered the National Gallery in London, produced an axe from up her sleeve and broke the glass on Velasquez's painting, popularly known as the Rokeby Venus, and slashed it in five places. And she was uh, uh, restrained and arrested immediately, of course. And she issued this statement via the Women's Social and Political Union, the WSPU, which is the suffrage organisation popularly referred to as the suffragettes. She said, I have tried to destroy the picture of the most beautiful woman in mythological history as a protest against the government for destroying Mrs. Pankhurst, who is the most beautiful character in modern history. Wow. So that's what she did. And she caused a sensation and she caused, amongst other things, single women were barred from being able to go into art galleries for some time after that because... Uh, they were all considered suspects. And indeed, <laughs> it is true that there was a spree of copycats, vandalisms, destructions of artworks following Mary Richardson's lead. Now, this is what she says. She's in the National Gallery. She's trying to find a, a moment where she can make her protest. I went back to the Venus room. It looked peculiarly empty. There was a ladder lying against one of the walls, left there by some workmen who had been repairing a skylight. As 12 o'clock struck, one of the detectives rose from his seat and walked out of the room. There were a couple of guards protecting the painting. The second detective, realising, I suppose, that it was lunchtime and he could relax, sat back, crossed his legs and opened a newspaper. That presented me with my opportunity, which I was quick to seize. The newspaper held before the man's eyes would hide me for a moment. I dashed up to the painting. My first blow with the axe merely broke the protective glass, but of course it did more than that, for the detective rose with his newspaper still in his hand and walked round the red plush seat, staring up at the skylight, which was being repaired. <laughs> the sound of the glass breaking also attracted the attention of the attendant at the door, who in his frantic efforts to reach me, slipped on the highly polished floor and fell face <laughs> downwards. And so I was given time to get in a further four blows with my axe before I was in turn attacked. It must all have happened very quickly, but to this day I can remember distinctly every detail of what happened. Two Baedeker guidebooks, truly aimed by German tourists, came cracking against the back of my neck. And then she's basically mobbed. A huge pile of people jumps on top wow. of her and the, the police come and get her and she's taken off to Holloway, where she had been frequently before. Uh, I believe she is the suffragette to have been force-fed the most times. Bloody hell. Um, oh, so my God. She yeah. suffered for the cause Sounds terribly. Sounds amazing. Right. It so, does sound amazing. So that book uh, was published in 1953, 40 years after the events it describes, 10 years before Mary Richardson's death. And in his book, Tom de Freston discusses what the meaning of that act might be, a protest for women's suffrage or he tries to reclaim it as an artistic act. What is the meaning of the canvas with the slashes in it? You can see the photographs of it on the, on the National Gallery website and on the internet. But he also says that later in her life, and this is something that is not mentioned by Mary Richardson in her autobiography at all, that in the 1920s, she stood for, as a Labour Party candidate 
in a London election. She wasn't elected. And then in 1932, she joined the British Union of Fascists, led by Sir Oswald Mosley. And she she said, quote, I was first attracted to the black shirts because I saw in them the courage, the action, the loyalty, the gift of service and the ability to serve, which I had known in the suffragette movement. Okay, so I read the book and I thought, this is really interesting. If we're talking about who appropriates stories, whose story, who owns what story, Mm -hmm. is this a protest? Is it an artistic progress? Is it a protest against the male gaze? There's feminist criticism that sees Mary Richardson's attack on the painting as specifically about, she said later in life, it's, I didn't like men gawping at women's bodies. She also said it was seen, there was a financial value to the painting. We never attacked life. We attacked things that had value that would, that, that would then attract the government's attention. And the book is a really carefully told and excellent, I must say, account of her struggle as a suffragette, her repeated imprisonment under the Cat and Mouse Act, her force feedings culminating in that act. So you, so the painting is presented to you as the, the, the slashing of the painting is presented to you as the inevitable consequence of the psychological and physical torture she underwent. And that struck me as having contemporary relevance in two ways. First of all, how do we feel when we think about the different meanings that that act could, under, could have when we compare it with the toppling of John Cassidy's statue of Edward Colston in Bristol? Mm-hmm. So it has a real contemporary resonance a hundred years mm-hmm. later in terms of why people seek to take that kind of action, direct yeah. action. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, in the dangerous 21st century, despite whatever other meaning might be put on it and despite the meaning that the author herself would like to present to you, it's quite difficult not to read this book as an account or chronicle of someone vulnerable to radicalization by a mm, charismatic yeah. leader or leaders, either mm-hmm. the Pankhursts for the good or Oswald Mosley for the bad. Mm-hmm. She has a particular type of highly wound personality seeking strong leadership yeah. that, where she can get it and a, and a righteous cause which history judges one to have been righteous, quite correctly, and the other, quite correctly, not to have been righteous. But I could almost see this book, I I feel quite strongly the book ought to be republished with a very careful contextualisation. Yeah. Like a sort of Edwardian Valerie Solanas, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) It's totally, totally fascinating book. Anyway, it's called Laugh and Defiance. John, what have you been reading this week? Almost completely by contrast, although there is a, an overlap in that the bit I'm going to read from this marvellous short novel, which I've been reading, called Cold Enough for Snow by uh, Australian writer Jessica Au, uh, takes place in an art gallery. But there's, <laughs> as you'll see, one of the joys of this book is that very little happens in it. It's 100 pages long. It's ostensibly about a, a mother and a daughter going on a holiday together to Japan. Um, they go to art galleries, they eat in restaurants, they talk about the past. There isn't much capital P plot to go on. And yet, 
the word lapidary is perhaps overused about prose, but that's what you've got here. You've got 100 pages of the most yeah. beautiful descriptive. It's a novella. It's one story. It's it's not really, you know, it's, it's, it's that strange bit where a short story grows into something a little bit bigger. Um, it's not clear by the end of the book really whether actually any of it has happened. Is the daughter actually just remembering the mother as a ghost? Are they really on holiday together? Is it all the same narrator all the way through? So I, I really, really love this. I'm going to read a little bit. I'm not going to say much more about it except to say that the thing that fiction does is, is open things up. At the point where the book is, you feel the narrator is going to have some profound insight. It flows through her fingers. But what happens by the end of the book, you find yourself going back and reading and rereading. It's a joy. It came through the post, thanks to Fitzcarraldo. Crowd. I started reading it and... I, I read 20 pages without being able to put it down. The prose is that good. Um, so I'll read a little bit. This is the narrator and her mother. Her mother is uh, from Hong Kong, Cantonese, from a Cantonese family. That's kind of important, although you know nothing really else about, about the narrator other than uh, memories from her childhood. So they're finding a church in a, sub, in a Japanese Tokyo suburb. I had some trouble at first finding the church. But eventually we came across it, a low box-like building in a quiet neighbourhood, and entered. Inside, the walls were made of raw concrete, which absorbed most of the light, making the interior dim and grey. The floor was not flat, but sloped ever so slightly downwards, as if pulling everything towards the simple southern altar. On the wall behind the altar, two great cuts had been made, one from floor to ceiling and the other horizontally so that they resembled a giant cross. As we sat, all our attention was focused on this large shape and the brilliant white light that streamed through the gaps in contrast to the subdued atmosphere of the room. The effect was riveting, not unlike staring out at the daylight through the opening of a cave. And perhaps, I said to my mother, this too was what it had felt like to be in the earliest churches when nature itself was still a force in the world, visceral and holy. I said also that the architect had originally intended the cross to be unsealed so that air and weather would have gusted through the openings like the will of God itself. It was a grey, cold day, and we were the only two people in the room. I asked my mother what she believed about the soul, and she thought for a moment. Then, looking not at me, but at the hard white light before us, she said that she believed that we were all essentially nothing, just series of sensations and desires, none of it lasting. When she was growing up, she said that she'd never thought of herself in isolation, but rather as inextricably linked to others. Nowadays, she said people were hungry to know everything, thinking they could understand it all, as if enlightenment were just around the corner. But she said, in fact, there was no control, and understanding would not lessen any pain. The best we could do in this life was to pass through it, like smoke through the branches, suffering until we either reached a state of nothingness or else suffered elsewhere. She spoke about other tenets of goodness and giving, the accumulation of kindness like a trove of wealth. She was looking at me then, and I knew that she wanted me to be with her on this, to follow her, but to my shame I found that I could not, and worse, that I could not even pretend. Instead, I looked at my watch and said that visiting hours were almost over, and that we should probably go. 
It's just a little snatch of it. It's it's a beautiful book. Like smoke through the branches. Yeah. That's beautiful. It kind of never goes anywhere, but then it sort of does in a a way that you don't stop thinking about it, which is, I think, honestly, what fiction is good at doing. This is published by... Fitz Growler Editions. I'm, I'm afraid the big fat one last time, and this is a tiny little one. Nine ninety nine. It's okay. uh, uh, cold enough for snow. Jessica Owl. The book chat will continue on the other side of this message. This attic's full of memories for me. We spent all our summers by the seaside, and in winter, at home, by the fire, frost on the window, and snow. Snowballs and making snowmen. <laughs> so we're, we're here to talk about Fungus the Bogeyman. And Andrew, this was all your idea. And when you pitched it to us, <laughs> just tell everyone what your one line was. It's the children's anatomy of melancholy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Job done. Just say that again for everybody. It's the children's anatomy of melancholy. <laughs> That's the cornerstone of this episode. I think that is, a, yeah. that is one of the greatest truths we have ever hit upon uh, in, yep. in bat-listed history. The children's anatomy Agreed. of melancholy. That I, I had not read... John, I don't know how long it is since you read this book. I haven't read it for years. And it was not what I remembered it being at all. No. I, I read it in the 70s, you know, when it came out. When I was, I mean, a mere, a mere strip of a lad myself, and remember enjoying it, and I remember the bogeyman fever that 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 kind of overtook, overtook the world. But uh, I, I, it's 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 the force of revelation of reading it this time around and realizing that it's it is a meditation on on it, it's a proper existential crisis that that fungus yeah. is having it's a it's a meditation on the modern world of 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 such beauty and profundity i'm 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 absolutely amazed i i i, I didn't read it again but i'm really pleased i've i've had the chance thank you to nadia and andrew for giving me the chance to reread it amazing Nadia, I would just like to make the point. Fungus the Bogeyman has all the poos and farts that we would expect to find in much contemporary children's literature. Yeah. But also massive intellectual content that we perhaps would not find in much contemporary children's literature. So I, my memory of it, I don't know what your memory of it is, but my memory of it was that it, people were scandalised by the, the rudeness of it yeah. Whereas, in fact, going back to it, it's just the the as Andrew identifies the elements like Robert Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy, yeah. which seems surprising <laughs> yeah. in a work for children. I'm not convinced. I actually sat down and read the whole thing yeah. when I was a kid. Yeah. I know that I was aware of Fungus the Bogeyman. I'm pretty sure I had like a Fungus the Bogeyman stationery set. I'm pretty sure you know because the 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 typeface, yeah. the fonts, you know, the hand-drawn Fundus the Bogeyman writing on the cover, that's very familiar to me. The character's familiar to me. When I was reading the book, I was like, did I ever actually sit down and read this? Because I'm not sure I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I'm being, yeah. you know, truthful. Yeah, I, I would say that's probably fairly common. You do get a lot of bogeys and farts and poos uh, in, in kids' books now. But this was kind of a revolutionary book in mm. that respect. Yeah. 
because that hadn't really happened much before this. And, you know, Raymond Briggs had the kind of stature and he could go for it. Also, you've got to remember the the, the number of author illustrators working in the country at that time compared to now, radically different. There's a huge, huge range now of books and authors and there's something for every taste pretty much. But back then, it was these giants of these art school giants who kind of gone through the art school system at kind of the same stage. So, you know, you've got uh, Brian Wildsmith and then, you know, Raymond Bridge, various other contemporaries, but there were, there was quite a small number, small in number. Mm. I was amazed by how dense the text yeah. was. There's yeah, so much absolutely. text and it's so crammed in. S- sort of book you would dip into yeah. as a child. I think you would open like, a, a double page mm-hmm. spread and then you would kind of lose yourself in yeah. it, right? I mean, we, we must ask Andrew. Andrew, you've got your original Here copy is, yeah. there, haven't you? When did you when when did you get your copy? Aww. In 1977. Um, my <laughs> brother bought it for me for my birthday and it's interesting, kind of, I was having a conversation recently on Twitter, of course, um, about things that I thought were too young for me in 1977, which included Star Wars. I didn't, I didn't go to see Star Wars because I was too grown up for Star Wars. And 2008 AD magazine. 2008 AD magazine came out in, in um, 1977. I didn't buy it because it looked silly and I thought I was far too grown up for it. However, I did not think that I was too grown up for Fungus the Bogeyman and neither did my brother who bought it for me. And I think... I actually think 11 is the right age at which to read Fungus the Bogeyman because I completely got lost in the text and the denseness of it. And what's interesting about it, I mean, just as an aside, I went back and looked at the the TV adaptations and the thing that they get wrong about it is that it's noisy. It's got like burps and farts in it and everything. And the thing that you notice about going back to Fungus the Bogeyman is how quiet and contemplative it is you know it's about thought and it's about an immersion in silence and it was interesting that um when john was talking about the plot you know you've basically got this kind of discontented working class man railing against the system and 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 pondering the meaning of his existence and then his his wife tells him not to worry and and it'll all be fine and it doesn't really help and that's the end of it and you kind of think well that's kind of the sort of stories the books that Briggs was growing up with the kind of angry young man books by the likes of sort of David Story and Alan Silito. They're basically this kind of man, working class man, railing against the system, but he still has his, you know, his his tea on the table when he gets yeah, home. Yeah, it's also the plot of all his all his other books as well. I mean, all they're all yeah. they're all <laughs> they're all, they all have, yeah, Briggs books kind of are about discont- discontent working men who, yeah. who think there must be more to life than this, including, <laughs> of course, Father Christmas. But one of the interesting things about it, going back to it, is at the time I loved the language and the kind of depth of language. But realizing now and having the internet and the chance to look it up and realize that he's quoting he's quoting people like John Milton. I mean, all the poetry and the literature Amazing. that's quoted in there is people like Thomas Carlyle, yeah, yeah, yeah. John Milton, Edmund Burke. John Donne. And, so, yeah. and John Donne. And so I'm reading about this stuff and basically kind of um, reading about Robert Herrick's book, Hesperides. And that is basically about, it's a picaresque guide to the history and weather and people and customs of the Isle. And you realise that he's, that's what Briggs is doing. He's writing his own, he's writing the bogey version of Hesperides and all those jokes are in there. And it's so rich. 
So, Andrew, are you saying it's plop-driven rather than plot-driven? <laughs> oh, very good. Very good. <laughs> um, I think we should hear from Raymond Briggs. We've got a few bits yeah. to hear from Raymond, who is a wonderful... Uh, he, uh, you know, we've been so lucky this year. Some of the um, writers we've featured were also, are also brilliant conversationalists, and that's very true of Raymond Briggs. Here he is setting the tone on Desert Island Discs with Ray Plumley in 1983. Raymond, how would you view a spell as a Robinson Crusoe? Oh, I think I'd look forward to it, really. I'm fed up with all the things we have to deal with every day, like paperwork and telephones and form filling. How important is music in your life? Not very much. I'm not a great music <laughs> fan. I've always found it rather complicated and uh, technical and rather intimidating. Do you have any skill? Do you play any instrument? No, nothing at all. Never have. Do you play music while you're working? No, I listen to Radio 4 more than anything. Mm. I like play... That? music in the evenings between about six and eight i think mainly uh cheer upping sort of music such as i've chosen that's the time when you feel you want to be cheered up at the end of the day rather than the beginning <laughs> yes I despite so. the fact you've done a good day's work yes relief of the gloom that descends at that time when the day has all gone badly <laughs> oh I love him. Raymond. I love him. And that's the start of the show. They him. haven't even played a record yet. Brilliant. <laughs> it's you want to say, Amazing. Raymond, you, you do know what this show is about. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing is, this is classic Raymond Briggs. On that one, on the, on the 1983 one, he plays eight red-hot jazz records in a row. Yeah. Wonderful, yeah. wonderful jazz music. He loved jazz. And then when he when he comes back in 2005, he chooses a whole different palette of types of music. Totally, wow. totally fascinating. So we talked a bit about how Fungus the Bogeyman doesn't have a plot. And Naji, you said you, you, you don't think you read it as a child. Can you remember, what's the earliest Raymond Briggs book you can remember or or the presence of Raymond Briggs? I remember, well, I I came out a year after Fundus the Bogeyman, so maybe my age <laughs> has something to do with it, <laughs> so to speak. Um, I remember The Snowman kind of being in my childhood. Um, I remember the book and I remember obviously what well, I think the animation might have been 1980. I'm going to get this wrong. I'm going to guess it's 83 ish, maybe 83, 84 when the snowman animation came out and it was just a snowman explosion. So that would have been the, the first time I was aware of him. John, I don't know about you. My mum wouldn't buy me Father Christmas by Raymond Briggs because it was too rude. <laughs> it was considered too shocking at the time. Yeah. I had to read Father Christmas in the library. I remember the snow, getting the snowman, it would have been a year or two years afterwards, and being massively disappointed in it. Right. Because it had no words, it had no text. What is this shit? Oh, <laughs> no appreciation. No appreciation of the visual narrative, Andrew. Come on, the sequential image. No, it's, it, was, it brought out the Griel Marcus in me. It was literally, I was oh, looking at it going, no. what is this shit? And... Um, <laughs> More, more yeah. text, more dense quoting, more misery, more existential doubt, please. Yeah. I'm always on the back foot with these sorts of things because people assume, because I'm a picture book maker, they always assume like, oh, when you were a child, did your parents read to you? Did you have a, a wealth of picture books in the house? 
and and the, and the the truth is no we had no picture books in the house so i don't kind of have the i don't have the well thumbed kind of sentimental pile of picture books that loads of my contemporaries do but my parents are pakistani immigrants culturally it just wasn't a thing i don't think back then it was just different now i've got the hamish hamilton paperback here it cost 1 pound 95 and on the wow. back it doesn't have any blurb it just has review quotes it yeah. says, a super book, Daily Mirror, a revolting book, Evening Standard. <laughs> <laughs> a very decent book indeed, BBC Kaleidoscope. You need a strong stomach and a quick eye, Sunday Times. Exquisite perversity, Quentin Crisp. That's, now that's, oh, that's brilliant. what you want. Yeah. I want that on all my books. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So here's Raymond Briggs talking again in 1983 about the relationship between writing Fungus the Bogeyman and then the snowman. Albert Ammons, Boogie Rocks. Raymond, the complaints about Father Christmas on the lavatory were as nothing to the complaints that flowed in about Fungus the Bogeyman. Yes, yes. Um, again, the kids didn't complain at all. It's um, these other peculiar people who uh, find it disgusting and can't yeah. see what's behind it. They only see the superficialities, I think. Well, the hideous world of bogeydom, <laughs> slime, pus, mildew, mould, you name it, it's all there in, in a rather off shade of green. Yes, but uh, it seems fairly natural to me. I don't find it uh, horrifying at all. It's all part of everyday life, and I don't know why people object to it so much. Well, the children didn't seem to object, as you say. You sold, what, 50,000 copies in a year? I never know the figures, actually. No, that's I don't the one know I've them. got. Really? Oh, that's good. <laughs> After Fungus the Bogeyman, the horror, you went on to the snowman, which was really sweetness and light all the way through. Well, that was done in reaction to fungus. I'd spent two years doing fungus, all immersed in this snot and slime and muck and everything. I was a bit fed up with it, also with the wordiness of it. And I wanted... <laughs> to do something that was quieter and simpler with no words and relatively quick to do. And I turned to the snowman as light relief from the bogeyman, really. Yeah, Andrew. Perfect. But he did just... Yeah. But what's, uh, we'll talk about this in a minute, but Nodger, he, where if you if, all the interviews that Briggs gives, he's very... He, that persona is brilliant because what he always says when, he, when he's asked, why did you write your own pitch books? He says, well, I realised that it was... You know, I was being asked to illustrate texts that were terrible. And I thought, oh, wait a minute. It's much easier to be a writer than an illustrator. I might as well just write my own stuff, which I think is I a... Mean, I've got to be... <laughs> fascinating. I've got to be careful what I say But it's a fascinating <laughs> bit of... Blo I'm, I mean more in terms of Raymond Briggs himself. It's a really interesting yeah. persona he puts forward yeah, that you'll yeah. hear all the yeah. way through this that is a, is a brilliant example of someone pretending to be somebody for the purposes of going out and talking about their work. Completely, um, completely. Don't you think? I I absolutely agree. I, I wonder, I mean, uh, uh, I wonder how much of his, I'm sure he was quite a grumpy individual in many ways, but I wonder how much of that was a, a, a kind of camouflage mm. for shyness, social awkwardness. And also um, it, when, you, when he taught himself down as a writer, I wonder if that's a defence mechanism. He is a writer. There's no doubt when you're reading his books, you know, the way he uses language, the, his ear for dialogue. It will talk in, in later on about Ethel and Ernest, which is, you know, speech bubbles. Uh, it's all dialogue. But but you don't just toss that off. You know, he, he's not just plonking words in. I, but uh, it's interesting. Maybe he felt more confident being regarded because he went through art school. I think he went to Slade. 
maybe he, he felt more confident being regarded as an artist and didn't want to be judged as a writer. I don't know, I'm speculating, but that, as you say, that that kind of mask he puts on, but, that being, oh, it's just, oh, I may as well get paid for the words as well, Yeah, yeah. is, yeah. I think, concealing, concealing some insecurities, maybe. He writes so beautifully. John, could you give us a bit of... Yeah, yeah I, I will. And, and this is there's a thing about him that I never... Until you were just saying that, Nadia, he was kind of a hero, a kind of a hero for what we would now call neurodiverse people. Quietness, um, visual, you know, that, 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 that I think, you know, he was an introvert. He didn't like socialising. He didn't want to be forced into the limelight. He didn't want to talk about his work. But I'll just read a little bit about bogeyball because it's, it's, it's one of the best things about sport ever written, I think. Bogeyballers are so wrapped up. It's a wonder they can move at all. Yet despite this and the layer of filth, they seem to move with an effortless grace and dignity, which makes the, f the fussy scurrying about of surface footballers appear slightly ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> the bogey ball is much larger than a football, being 31 binches in diameter and of an extremely light nature, more like a balloon than a ball. Bogeymen seem to be entirely lacking in the competitive spirit, for the object of the game is to put the ball into the into the player's own goal and help the opposing team to put the ball into their goal. The aim is to lose the game, that is, to score the fewest goals. This is quite difficult when the opposing team is helping you to score. Bogeymen are shy, gentle and retiring by nature, so there is no physical contact between them and their games. Should two players accidentally bump into one another, they will immediately step back and bow formally emitting a quiet hiss at the same time. In bogeyball, the ball is passed gently from one player to another, more often with the head than the feet. For this reason, bogeyballers wear bogeyball bonnets, which are flat-topped hats designed not to protect their heads, but to protect the ball from damage by the bogeyman's little horns. Bogeymen never run or hurry, not even in their games, so the match proceeds with an almost dreamlike slow motion. There is no shouting or cheering. The crowd expresses its approval with a quiet hissing. A goal is greeted with complete silence and stillness. Many spectators instantly fall asleep. <laughs> the strange and unnerving silence which follows a bogey goal is a memorable event to anyone who has ever experienced it. That's just beautiful, isn't it? Oh, Nadia, you're right. What, what brilliant writing. Yeah. It's brilliant. Yeah. And what he's done, he does that thing he inverts the, the inversion thing is that's which is runs through the book. It's it's just beautifully mm. done there. I think Roman may have the same opinion of football as Andy. <laughs> I, I, I I could relatable, Nikki. It's relatable. Um, <laughs> Andrew, you compared it to the anatomy of melancholy. I wonder, did you feel going back to it that the depths of the book are, you know, the surface of it is. The rather the love of language and the the jokes, um, but beneath it there's deep currents of learning and gloom. I suppose I would characterise it. It seemed to me so Absolutely, so yeah. so green and boggy for a for what's nominally a children's book. One of the lovely things about it is in the same way that he presents bogey facts, like there are pages from encyclopedias and it's a question of sort of learning, that that's kind of how it's presented to you, that you are in a process of learning and you're, and you're deep within knowledge. And it kind of, mentioning kind of, when we were saying earlier that he quotes from people like kind of 
Carlyle and Milton and everything. But not only does he quote from them, he borrows the structures of a lot of their books, you know, so you can compare it to Burke's philosophical inquiry into the sublime or, you know, you can compare it to Carlyle's Sartre or Rosatus. You know, these are, these are you know, obviously I didn't pick up on that when I was 11, but, you know, you go back to it now and you can see kind of the, 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 the erudition <laughs> and the knowledge. Surprised. I mean, even there's a... <laughs> The well, you know, kind of. I, that was by the time I got. I was twelve by the time I twigged it. Um, <laughs> but you know, there's like that lovely passage about the National Bogey Gallery, which you kind of realise is about. It's kind of Briggs writing about Victorian art, you know, and kind of mm. and and mm. a lot of the time you feel that he's kind of he's writing a kind of history book about you know almost like a past age. There's a nostalgia in there, and there's a kind of sentimentality that you know in the sense that he's kind of writing about yes he's writing about bogeydom but he's also writing about this kind of he's writing with a sense of nostalgia for it of something that's gone which is incredibly moving incredibly beautiful yeah yeah yeah. why don't we hear so the audio quality on this isn't very good but it is totally fascinating this is uh raymond briggs talking in 1980 about fungus the bogeyman and the background noise you can hear in the second half is him referring to a filing cabinet you can find this on youtube stuffed with the research for fungus the bogeyman when he opens the drawer it's broken up with dividers saying things like culture and slime and so the reading that has gone into the book is clearly immense. Having got the character coming into the thing, I work with the dictionary a lot. Because I always work from the words and from the literary side of things. And um, I spent a long time going through the dictionary making lists of words which either sounded bogeyish or could be turned into bogeyish stuff. And um, started a whole I mean, I'm sorry about the quality, but that's the best way I could get it. Uh, but, oh, that's no, uh, brilliant! But totally, exactly what we've all been saying. You know, the depth of work that goes into into creating the the world. Now, we asked everybody to bring, um, in addition to Fungus the Bogeyman, their favourite uh, Raymond Briggs book. And uh, Nadia, which book did you choose? Well, I've chosen Ethel and Ernest, which is a long form comic strip. Um, some people would say graphic novel to make it sound respectable, um, whatever you want to call it, graphic novel, long form comic. And it's about uh, his parents, Ethel and Ernest. It spans their yeah. relationship from, you know, their early courtship, the, the moment they first meet all the way up to their deaths. 
it's um it's so so beautiful and I think for me it kind of distills my the you know the things that I love the most about his work um and I respond I don't know why but I just respond to his illustration style in this book a lot more than I actually do with Fungus the Bogeyman for example or the snowman there's something about how he observes there's something about how he observes kind of the fabric of everyday life the light switches and lampshades the bricks of of the house that his he, oh. that he grows up in steve bell the guardian cartoonist says one of the great yeah. things about raymond briggs's work is his ability to draw bricks tiles and slates yes it is <laughs> because he does he draws but he draws every i am useless at this i think that's one of the reasons i'm so in awe of him i i consider myself just this I'm, I am a you know, terrified amateur, but when it comes to buildings, and he draws every brick sort of has soul, and and he yeah. he draws every line and every tile is imbued with feeling, and you can you yeah, can feel it absolutely. and smell it, and it's <clears throat> that you know. So he, he, aside from the the story, the kind of narrative and 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 the dialogue, which is fantastic. Aside from all of that, I'm just you know, in awe of the drawings. Um, they're just so beautifully, perfectly observed. You know that he knows this house inside and out. Yeah, yeah. And there are some images uh, towards the end as his parents are declining in health, which just take your breath away. They're heartbreaking, yeah, yeah. The kind of raw emotional nakedness of some of the images at the end. You know, I really was having to, you know, take take have a few deep breaths <laughs> when you get there because it's so moving there's something quite larkin about ethel and ernest andrew and also yeah that's right the larkin but also you see his parents throughout his work don't you, you yeah, as yeah. we yeah, get as absolutely. we look back on his work so this yeah. is specifically yeah. about his parents but where else do we find a couple who are like his mother and father to andrew well, well well, of course, it's it's in Fungus the Bogeyman as well, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And in when the and when the wind blows as well, of course. And when the wind blows, but that thing I want to say about the Larkin thing—it's kind of because of it's about that eye for detail that Nadia talks about, but it's also about his fascination with the banal and the poetry of the banal, mm, and that's yeah. in Fungus yeah. the Bogeyman, and it's in Ethel and Ernest as well, and just that sense that he finds things of interest in in aspects that we would look past and he looks at the the bogey the bogey world like that like you know the little you know depressions in the earth where the bogies go to sleep and 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 dream when things get too difficult for them which I'm quite envious of I know I want one of those exactly but also you know he does that with Ethel and Ernest he 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 says in interviews oh you know there's not nothing very much happened in their lives but that is the point that he's making, that you can take a story about two ordinary people. And if you've got the right eye for detail, you can find the beauty in it and you can find the poignancy in it. Here's a little bit of Raymond talking about the influence of his parents on his work. And also, I just must tell people that in the second half of this clip, he's referring to some furniture that he's painted in his own house with a portrait of his mother and father, of Ethel and Ernest. I mean, the one I like best is my mum and dad one, of course, Ethel and Ernest. Seem to be obsessed with my parents. Got 500 photographs of them up on the wall and drawings and things. <laughs> Very unhealthy. Um, 
I do look at it quite often. It's the only one of my books I ever do look at, because it's like a family picture book in a way. I don't look at the death bits at the end, of course. That's a bit upsetting. Um, this was done uh, while I was filling in time, I think. I waited to uh, hear what they said about Ethel and Ernest when I'd drawn it out in pencil, and they were ages looking at it. So I filled in the time, doing this sort of knitting, just um, doing my parents again, uh, just to pass the time, really. And I never finished it. It's so crude and uh, unfinished and bad in all sorts of ways. But I've ceased to see it now. I might paint it over soon, because it's... Uh, Rather ghastly, it's a bit like those people at um, the Bloomsbury lot, you know. <laughs> Decorating cupboard doors atrociously. Um, yes, that's what it is, really. Yet another parental thing. <laughs> oh, he's so oh, wonderful. How wonderful. Oh, he's so how wonderful. wonderful. So I would like to talk very briefly. I'd just like to give a shout out to one of his later books, which I found I'd never read before with a prep for this. It's just Brilliant. Have any of you read Ugg, Boy Genius of the Stone Age? No. I haven't, actually. No. Oh, it's so funny. It's so funny. And like the anatomy of melancholy, Andrew, it has loads of footnotes in it. Oh, this sounds good. It's all one song, as we're fond of saying on here, but it's the same story again. It's about a Stone Age boy called Ugg, who is sensitive and a visionary and has the misfortune to have parents who aren't called Doug and Dugs. His mum is called Dugs. <laughs> and, and, uh, and he dreams of having trousers that aren't made of stone. That's the plot. The, the plot he, said, he says, uh, he said, these trousers are too small, Dad. I wish trousers weren't made of stone. They're so... <laughs> They're so uncomfortable, I can hardly move. And his, and Doug, his dad, says, they were made for you by me, hand-carved trousers. And Ugg says, why can't trousers be made of something else, something softer? And his father says, softer? Look, there's nothing in the world except mud, bushes and stones. So take your pick. What do you want? Trousers made of mud? Trousers made of bushes? Listen to me. Nowadays, everything is made of stone. That's why it's called the Stone Age. Brilliant. <laughs> no spoilers in this, but even by the standards of Raymond Briggs, the ending of this one is oh, no. absolutely bleak beyond all imagining. I can't actually, I don't <laughs> want to say what it is because it would spoil the reading, but it's such a little <laughs> pathetic drop at the end of the book. <laughs> They get so close to making soft trousers. Oh. <laughs> That's all I'm going to no. say. In keeping with so many of Raymond Briggs's books, they, uh, they have sad endings. And here's a, here's, here's a bit of Raymond talking about that now. Your children's books don't always have happy endings, do they? Mm. No, they're usually sad endings, people tell me. But most endings are sad anyway. It all ends in death. Snowman melts and the bear goes back to the Arctic and... Everyone dies at the end when the wind blows. Well, quite. But you think that's important? Yes, absolutely. Because that's what we've all got to face. That, that's the reality. Mm. And Father Christmas, according to you, is a grumpy old what's it? Mm. <laughs> well, it's bound to be. It's only being logical. And we know if you treat it logically, all these things I do, you take something that's fantastical, like a bogeyman, Father Christmas, and 
from then on assume that they're real and from then on treat it completely logically. So Father, Father Christmas gets cheesed off getting mm, dirty and mm. coming down the chimney. and Dreadful job. I mean, we know he's old, we know he's fat. Who'd like to climb down one chimney, let alone hundreds? Covered in soot, freezing cold, on your own. Uh, dreadful, dreadful job. He's bound to be fed up with it. Are you telling me you're a grumpy old man? Then? No, no, no. I'm very cheerful and light-hearted. so lovely it's interesting what he says there he is truthful he doesn't shy away from the truth I mean you know even with Fundus the bogey man you know bogeys and all the the other unpleasantness that's that's very true that's a true part of being human and he knows that children haven't yet really learned to or I think he does I don't think he's that concerned with his audience actually but I think he he recognises that children also just look at the truth yeah yeah. You know, oh, we die at the end. Okay, it's like, uh, yeah. and I, I yeah, think, yeah. I think that's that exactly I think that, right. I think, I think, I think in children's books, we, I mean, I've put death in some of my children's books, and it's adults who get upset. It's adults who write angry <laughs> reviews on Amazon about me, or or who will send an angry emails. It's not children. Adults are closer so, to death, you see. They're more scared of it. Yeah. Yeah. But it's funny because, I mean, the book he wrote, The Man, which feels very much like a kind of reaction to The Snowman, but That's also amazing too. <laughs> a reaction to, um, I think also a re- like a reaction to books like The Tiger Came to Tea, because it is, it's basically about this kind of horrible little homunculus yeah. who comes to live with this boy. And he's, he's an absolute <laughs> nightmare and he's miserable yeah. and, he, and he just messes everything up and just kind of is a burden to the young boy. And and then leaves, you know, and it's kind of like you think, is he writing about, you know, young people looking after their old parents? You know, is he kind of is it another Mm. reference to Briggs's own life? But it's a brilliant way of doing it. It basically says, you know, that these people might come into your life. And unlike the snowman, which is which is, you know, a magical event that ends in it melting, (laughs) the arrival into your life could be an absolute sod. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, they they, they yeah. bicker. They spend the whole book bickering, and at the end, yeah, uh, he misses him terribly. That, that's the, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's just incredible. Again, just, surely, yes, yeah. He just uh, and he kind of creates some. Oh, yes, fantastic. John, what book have you brought to us? I brought this. It's called Notes from the Sofa, and it's a collection. And this of is the, the book you uh, published, right? We published this. I'm bound published it. He apparently heard Dan, my partner, uh, business partner, on the radio, and he said, I hear you giving publishing a kick up the arse. How can I help? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, Dan and, and, and uh, James Pembroke from the Oldie, and uh, Raymond had a marvellous old-school bo- boozy lunch. Um, we oh, had several nice. of those after that. And it's basically his columns, but it's – it's you know the columns are sometimes ranty, but they're very very funny, and they are of course also heartbreaking. I mean, the last column is about the death of his dog. He writes about the death of his chicken, where he falls in love with this chicken that adopts him. But I just thought there's I'm not going to read very much, but there's just a brilliant little story in here, which this is this is classic Roman Briggs, right? He says. Um, Almost half a century ago, became a friend of the great K. Webb, founder of Puffin Books, and known affectionately in the trade as Big Fat Puffin. <laughs> I didn't know wow. that was true, but that's, that's, if, you, if, if Roman's Crikey. saying it's true. So 
My wife, Jean, had, this, is, this is great. You know, you talk about those sort of focus pulls he's able to do. My wife, Jean, had died in 1973 and Kay kindly took me under her wing as I had no family, something you desperately need at such a time. My parents had both died in 1971 and I had no brothers and sisters. Anyway, they go on this mad tour to Norfolk and they end up being locked out of their hotel and they have to sleep in his van, in his car. They go into the reception and say, what the hell was going on? And they say, well, did you not see the signs? The hotel closes at 11.30pm. And he writes this, whoever heard of a hotel closing at 11.30pm? It makes you want to bring back hanging. Kay was over 60 at the time. And an October night spent virtually outdoors could have had serious consequences for her health. Newspaper headlines might have read, Ronald Searle's ex-wife frozen in van. <laughs> a 39-year-old a thirty-nine-year-old van driver, that's him, has been arrested. Anything for a quiet life in solitary. Anyway, it's, it's, it's just a lovely, lovely collection. But he was a, a total joy to deal with. Um, everybody fell in love with him, and you know it's it's still in print. Still, obviously, sells really, really well. It was, yeah, just one of the great publishing experiences. Wow. So, I hadn't appreciated uh, until we were researching for this that, in fact, basically all the books we think of, of Ray, as Raymond Briggs, from Father Christmas onwards, from the early nineteen seventies, are in reaction to his personal situation in the early 70s where he lost both parents and his wife in the space of a year. And I think when you know that, uh, and also the fact that he was in his late 30s to early 40s, all this huge success that came to him was almost not irrelevant. It clearly made things more comfortable, but but secondary to the exploration artistically of what those losses meant to him. And um, so before we talk about that and we talk about his his what will probably be his final book, I think we should hear him talk about his wife, Jean. She has schizophrenia, which is not something that I wish on anybody. Absolute nightmare. But uh, that governed our whole lives, governed her life, of course, and governed mine for many years. She was constantly in and out of mental hospitals. Yeah. Mm. But you've also said that she was a, an inspiration as well mm. in, in her meanderings, as it were, sometimes. Yes, well, they are very inspiring people because they have wild flights of imagination and tremendous enthusiasms and excitement and they're very stimulating to live with, if exhausting. But you have all the bad side of it, the agoraphobia, claustrophobia, and physical attacks rather like epilepsy to cope with. Mm. Lying on the bed and shuddering and screaming. It's all rather alarming, really. Mm. The burden was for her more than for me. Mine was just helping to look after and uh, to deal with it. What did she die of in the end? Leukaemia. Mm. Had both these things going at the same time, leukaemia and schizophrenia. I wrote a a template, a poem about it um, when she was in hospital. These two things ravaging this person. There we are. Hmm. Hmm. Nadia, you were talking about truth. Mm. Yeah. It's very hard to listen to that and and not respect his willingness to deal with these dreadful things in his art and in his life. 
it's it's unflinching and yet unsentimental. He refuses to give in to that sentimentality, doesn't he? I think that's how he honours them, whether it's his gene or his parents. He, he honours them by representing them whole, completely wholly uh, and speaking about Jean completely truthfully. I think that's his, yeah, that's his, that's his tribute to them. And he would probably disagree with you saying this, but in that context, it's very easy to look at his books as a kind of therapy, isn't it? And a kind of a way of working through ideas and thoughts and kind of, you know, and, and they are kind of all, they're ruminations on existence, aren't they? They're, and they're about mm-hmm. brief lives and they're about people who come to stay and then leave suddenly. Yeah, absolutely. I think I, th- I think when you pull, I mean, I, I think people working in the field of children's books and picture books, and I'm not comparing everyone to Raymond Briggs, but I do think a lot of that happens in the form. I do think any author illustrator worth their salt or who means it or cares about the form will put some of their own stuff in there and it it will not be noticed by anyone or you know maybe not even them but it will be in there and certainly for someone of Raymond Bridges kind of you know caliber um that's that's hugely the case I think he he had that thing of uh I mean, spending time with him, you know, there was a lot of bravura, but that, that one skin too few thing. Mm. Uh, he reminded yes. me in lots of ways of Alan Garner in that respect. Very different kind of work, but they were both mm. the war, you know, loomed over their lives in in such a, a huge way. And uh, you know, both of them, I suppose. You, I mean, as you say, it's not not the way he would have described it, but they use their art to cope with the fact that they feel things so yeah. deeply. Yeah, that they yeah, they yeah. they have to make it. They have to they have to leaven it with humour. They have, but actually, you know, as we've said, Roman's books are not they're they're comedy in the kind of, you know, in that sort of Shakespearean Beckettian sense. You know, they're they're mm. not comedy in the, in in the kind of slapstick sense at all. I mean, they they're very very deep and 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 quite dark. I, I agree, Johnny. I I mean, for me, going back and revisiting or visiting both those things. Raymond Briggs's work for this, I for me, uh, my understanding of him as an artist in the true sense. Yeah. I don't mean a, just a, a someone who draws things. I mean as an artist, you know, that someone who draws on yeah. in their forties, fifties, and the rest of their life the things that matter to them, the particular things that matter to them. They come back to them again and again to present yeah. universal ways of looking at them. And that, that's what art is, it seems to me. How moving is that final hug in, but in fungus? The slimy hug in that. I mean, it's, mm. it, and it, where it's all about love, you know. Mm. It's just that yeah. she's, she's, lo- yeah. she's loving him through his, his existential kind of um, doubt. It's just beautiful. Could we talk a little bit before we go about his most recent and what will probably be his final book? Um this was published in 2019 by Jonathan Cape. It's called Time for Lights Out. Um, I didn't really know about this book, and I read it for uh, Backlisted, and I think everyone else did, didn't they? I think we all kind yeah, of... we did. Yeah. As much I, as I could bear. Yeah. I was absolutely <laughs> blown away by this. Uh, this seems Same. to me to be a fantastic example of a forgotten book published in 2019. And weirdly, what we're here for, to draw people's attention to. I mean, you probably know Fungus the Bogeyman, listeners, and you probably don't know Time for Lights Out. 
but it's the it's the product of 20 years work it's the book Briggs said he was writing for years about old age and it is the m I I can't find the vocabulary I've never read a book like it there you go I've never read a book like Time for Lights Out what did, what did everybody else think of it I thought it was incredible and the thing that struck me immediately is how similar to Fungus the Bogeyman is it is and a lot of his books but finally he is writing about himself he is you yeah. know certain, he is finally the character at the center of the book it's no That's longer right. he's no longer using Father Christmas or Fungus the Bogeyman it is about Raymond Briggs but it's following the same path it's it's that it addresses all those things like a quest for meaning you see parallels in the way that kind of he is someone who kind of thinks about poetry and prose and kind of, and is, and is incredibly learned, but is constantly confronting the questions that other people don't. So like fungus is, is asking, what is the point? Why are we here? And, 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 you know, and mildew and, and his pals down the pub don't want to address it. And right up until the present day, he is, you know, he is on that final path that he talks about. And he's asking those questions that even people at his age would would not dare ask about their own existence. No, you, how, what about the way the the art and the the text interact in this book? Well, I mean, that's what I was going to say. So I find that fascinating. That you know, that the 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 artwork is black and white pencil scattered throughout the book. It's not necessarily it's not particularly consistent. Occasionally, there'll be a comic strip. Sometimes there'll just be some scrawled quick drawings that he's just, you know, sort of some some light sketches. Um, but I think that kind of speaks to what Andrew was just saying. He's stripped away the need to have that the the kind of world building of Fundus the Bodyman, where these themes are weaved beautifully within this colourful, sludgy, but still <laughs> colourful uh, comic mm. that is really stripped away. And everything is just the information is being laid down as he need. Uh, uh, you know, almost. I know it took twenty years, but the, it feels quite quick. Yeah, almost like he's just trying to get everything down. What he really feels about yes. every interaction, whether yes, it's a I passage agree. about his dad dying, he wants to give. He, he takes us there mm. exactly to the bedside, and you know, all his thoughts like get on with it, dad, and then he got on with yeah. it. So he's getting rid of anything extraneous but, and getting it all down. But at the same time, that light pencil gives you the feeling that it could all just blow away. Mm. That there's, yeah, you know, yeah, there's yeah. a real sense impermanent, of impermanent. Yeah. There's a real sense of impermanence yeah, yeah. about it. It's, that we are we are at the end, and it's only just staying on the page, and it's utterly delicate. Amazing, amazing book. I just want to read one poem from it, which seems like. Raymond Briggs wrote as an epitaph, talking about the house that he lived in, that we've talked about, talking about maybe the attic that we heard David Bowie at the beginning in, with uh, reminiscing about the snowman. This is a poem from Time for Lights Out called Future Ghosts. Looking round this house, what will they say, the future ghosts? There must have been some balmy old bloke here, long-haired, artsy-fartsy type, did pictures for kiddie books or some such tripe. You should have seen the stuff he stuck up in that attic. Snowman this and snowman that. Tons and tons of tat. 
three skips it took, and a whopping bonfire out the back. Thank God it's gone, and he's gone too. He must have been a nutter through and through. <laughs> and if that's not bravery, listeners, I don't know what is. And I'm afraid it's now time for our lights out. Large and moist thanks to Andrew and Nadia for reminding us of the melancholy wit of Raymond Briggs. To Nikki Birch for producing a bogey-friendly hiss of a show and to Unbound for the supplies of Soggies and Cloaca Cola. <laughs> you can download all 157 previous episodes plus follow links, clips and suggestions for further reasoning by visiting our website, batlisted.fm. We're always pleased if you contact us on Twitter and Facebook and now in sound and pictures in, on Instagram too. You can also show your love directly by supporting our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. We aim to survive without paid for advertising and your generosity helps us do that. All patrons get to hear backlisted episodes early and for little more than the price of two pots of green slime at the King Orgias, <laughs> lot listeners get two extra lot listeds a month. Our own public liberality, where we three give vent to our libidinous natures and discuss the dross we've heard, watched and read in the previous fortnight. <laughs> oh dear. Lock listeners also get to hear their names read out on the show as a mark of our thanks and appreciation. This week's batch roll call is Yasmin Awad, Stuart Galloway-Walker and Charlotte Geeta. Thank you all for your generosity. All our patrons, our heartfelt thanks. Thank enabling so us to much. continue what we do and love and enjoy. Naja Shireen, is there anything you would like to add about Raymond Briggs that we have yet to say? Any last message for our listeners? Oh, well, do you know a nice thing that happened? It's I have this huge pile of Raymond Briggs books uh, in my living room and my eight-year-old, actually nine-year-old, uh, wandered past and went, Raymond Briggs, blooming Christmas, <laughs> and wandered off. <laughs> Brilliant. So I Fabulous. was really heartened by that. I oh, thought it continues. It, the power continues. continues. Very good. Wonderful. Andrew, if, and really only our longest term listeners will understand why I'm asking you this, but if <laughs> Fungus the Bogeyman were a Gene Kelly film, which Gene Kelly film would it be? You won't be surprised to hear that I had to dig quite deep for this one. <laughs> <laughs> But in 1962, Gene Kelly directed a film called Gijo, in which Jackie Gleason plays a giant, unwashed, sentimental mute who travels the foul-smelling back streets of Paris and tries, to and tries to explain concepts like death, religion and war to a small, questioning child. Brilliant. Brilliant. Uh, can, Nikki, can we drop in the end of the 1812 overture to salute uh, <laughs> Andrew's achievement there? Magnificent, Andrew. Magnificent. Thank you. Well, listen, super. thanks very much, everybody. We're going to leave you with um, yep. a tribute that I think Raymond would hate, um, which has been, <laughs> has been recorded by our dear friend, Verity McCormack, uh, who is eight years old, and uh, uh, you'll recognise the poem. So thanks very much, Naja, Andrew. This has been yeah, brilliant. Wonderful. Thank you, guys. Thank you well, so much for giving us this this opportunity. Boy, boy, Drias. <laughs> boy, boy, Drias. <laughs> future ghosts. Looking round this house, what will they say, the future ghosts? 
must have been some barnyard like Kay. Long-haired, artsy-fartsy type. The pictures for kiddie books or some such tripe. You should have seen the stuff he stuck up in that attic. Snowman this, snowman that. Tons and tons and tons of tat. Three skips it took in a whopping bonfire out the back. God, it's gone, and he's gone too. He must have been a real mutter. Through and through. Do you like children? Well, not uh, our mess. I mean, occasionally you come across kids who are, are nice, and you get on with them as individuals. As a species, I suppose I don't really. If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.